great position. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Well, as Hannah just mentioned, we're continuing our James series today. We're looking at this letter found in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, written by a guy called James, who's actually the brother of Jesus. And it's written just about 20 years after Jesus uh, lived and died, rose again, returned to be with God the Father. And it's a book where James is telling us what Christian life should look like. He's talking about religion that God accepts, and that means the outward working of the inward relationship we have with God. And today we've reached James chapter 3. So you've got a Bible, you might want to turn there. And in James 3, James talks a lot about the tongue. And I was reading this this week and I thought, I don't know much about the tongue. I thought I'd find some things out. Did you know you have a unique tongue print? So if you did a tongue print like you do a fingerprint, every single one of us here would be utterly unique. All our tongues are different shapes and sizes and have different markings on them. Did you know your tongue is the most flexible muscle in your body? In fact, there's a combination of eight muscles kind of intertwined together, which make it the most flexible, muscular part of your whole body. And did you know your tongue automatically starts cleaning your teeth after you eat? Even if you're not aware of it, your tongue cleans your teeth teeth every time after you eat. The tongue is pretty amazing. It can do amazing things. But actually, when James is talking about the tongue, he isn't thinking of those amazing things. He's thinking about something far more powerful, actually far more amazing the tongue does. The tongue is what helps us to talk. James is talking here about our speech, our use of our tongue for the most powerful thing. Actually, our speech is far more powerful than any muscle in the whole of our body. It can be used for good and it can be used for bad. And in James 3, James is telling us that learning to control our tongues is a key part of living out the religion that God accepts. And I think this is a great topic to talk about today on Baby Thanksgiving especially. I think often it's in family context that we can find it hardest to control our tongues. Whether as a parent, as a child, as a spouse, even actually I think as a close friend, sometimes it's in those relationships we find it hardest actually to live out religion that God accepts in terms of how we're using our speech. It reminded me of a character from uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's uh, Progress, a novel really kind of written several centuries ago. And there are two characters walking on the way and they meet this guy called Talkative. And they get to know him a bit as they chat with him along the way. They think, this guy Talkative is a really nice guy. He's a, a really good guy. They probably thought he's a guy who lives out the religion that God accepts. But then they hear that actually the people who really know Talkative refer to him as a saint abroad and a devil at home. They say, see him out with other people, see him out in public, and he seems like this wonderful saintly figure, speaks wonderfully, but see him at home, see him maybe with his family, see him with the people he's closest with, and actually you realise he's a right devil in the way he uses his speech. I think it's very easy for us to be like talkative. There can be contexts where everyone thinks we're wonderful and we're very godly people because of the way we speak. But then actually get us behind closed doors with the people we're closest with, the people we don't think we need to kind of prove anything to, the people, sadly, we are less worried about hurting. Often people get us at our worst, and actually our speech can be not controlled. We don't tame our tongues. And so James gives us great wisdom here for every interaction we have, every time we're using our speech. But I think as well it's especially good today on Baby Thanksgiving for us to think about how does that fit into our own context of family and of close friendships. So we're going to read the whole chapter. In James 3, he does two things. The first uh, 12 verses, he's talking especially about speech. And then verses 13 to 18, he talks about wisdom from above. Paul just read from them, actually. 
And because of time today, we're going to focus on that first bit about speech. But if you're together with people in a small group or community group this week, you might want to look at those later verses as well. See how is it the wisdom from above helps us uh, when we think about our speech. So let's see what James says in uh, chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pirate directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and of bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James actually starts with something which is a bit of a side note, but which is some really useful wisdom. Thinking about the whole thing of speech makes him think about teachers. And he starts with his warning. He says, not many of you should expect to or should seek to become teachers. And he's not here talking about school teaching. He's not saying we should limit the number of PGCE courses we'll run. He's saying, actually, there's a role in the church. The New Testament says there's a role in the church where God equips people, a gift of the Holy Spirit to understand what God has done in Christ and to help people to understand that and to live their lives in the light of that. And he's warning them, don't rush for this, don't seek for this, because he knows that in his context, it would be a very attractive thing. In the Jewish communities around the churches to whom James is writing, the teachers, the rabbis were kind of the top guys. They were the guys who had the position of honour, the position of respect. And so people kind of wanted to get to that place because they're the ones who people look up to. They're the ones who people listen to and respect. They're the ones who get the special treatment. And so he's saying to them, don't seek after it for that kind of thing. Because actually James knows that in the church, we all have different roles. We all do different things, but we're all equal. The Apostle Paul uses the picture of a human body. He says, think about your body. There are hundreds, thousands, actually, of different parts. All the parts do different things, and they all work together to make your body do what it needs to do. But he says, even though every part's different, every part has a different role to play, each one is valuable, each one is equally important. So James isn't saying that there aren't or there shouldn't be teachers in the church. He's saying, actually, don't think that teachers are a kind of higher position, that you strive to try and get there. 
He says, whatever our role in the church, whatever our role in the body of Christ, we're all equal. And then he gives us a reason why we shouldn't strive for this. He says, actually, teachers are going to receive stricter judgment. He says, those to whom God gives the understanding and the ability and the opportunity to teach other people about him actually will receive a stricter judgment. This works on the biblical principle of stewardship, which is when God gives us lots, God expects lots back from us. We see this in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus tells a parable about people giving different things and that God expects things back from them. He ends the parable. He says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. James is saying much has been given to those who teach in the church and therefore much will be expected. He says, be cautious about running into these things. He's speaking specifically about teachers here. Presumably that was especially relevant to his context. But actually, I think this is good wisdom. We can kind of make it broader to think about leadership. It's very easy, I think, in a church context for us to desire leadership for the sake of having position, for the sake of getting recognized. We think we want to be on the stage. We want to have the authority. We can kind of believe that leadership is where it's at. That's Christian success. And sadly, actually, I think often as churches, we project that message, that leadership equals Christian success. Actually, the Bible says that to be successful, to live Christian life rightly, we focus on being mature in Christ. We focus on doing whatever he calls us to do. We focus on living in obedience to God. That's what God wants from us. For some of us, that will involve leadership. For some of us, it won't. God's desire is that we live in obedience to Christ. That is the end goal of Christian life, not that we get into some sort of leadership position. But the Bible is also really clear it's not wrong to have a sense of a calling from God to be in leadership. And James gives us what I think is a great bit of wisdom in the next chapter, actually, chapter 4, which I think answers how do we handle it. If we do feel God has uh, called us to some sort of leadership or God has gifted us and wants us to be maybe a teacher or to be something in a church, what do we do with that? Well, James 4.10, James says, Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. I think that's a great principle to live by. Because actually Christian leadership isn't about having a position or authority. Jesus said to become the greatest, we make ourselves the least. He said if you want to be a leader, then you serve people. If you feel called to leadership, if you desire leadership, humble yourself before the Lord and then let him raise you up. Let him open opportunities. Focus on getting stuck in with serving. Do whatever you can to play your part, to get involved, to bless God's people, to build his church. Focus on your character. God's far more concerned about you than he's about what you can do. And you will be far more limited by yourself than you will be by what you can and can't do. Focus on your character. Learning to live in obedience to God to become more and more like him. Focus on humbling yourself and allow God to raise you into different things at different times. That's his first bit of wisdom James gives us. And he's talking about teachers because teachers talk. The nature of a teaching role is you do it through speech. And now he moves on to talk about the power of the tongue. His first big thing he wants us to know about our speech is that it is incredibly, incredibly powerful. He says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. He's saying if we can learn to follow God in the way we use our speech, then actually everything else will just follow behind. How can that be? It's because learning to control your speech is so difficult that actually everything afterwards will seem comparatively simple. It's a bit like if you've got a load, uh, a load of stuff into your car, if you start with the heaviest thing, then no matter how heavy the things afterwards are, they're all going to seem comparatively simple. 
James is saying if you can learn to control your tongue, then actually everything else in terms of controlling yourself and learning to live in obedience to Jesus will seem comparatively simple. That's why he focuses so much on this, in this letter on speech, on the power of speech. And then he gives us some illustrations. He wants us to get this idea that the tongue, it might seem really small, really insignificant, but it has huge power. He says it's a bit like a bit in the mouth of a horse. A bit is the thing you put in the mouth of the horse and you attach the reins and you, you direct it left and right and tell it to stop and go and stuff using that. It's this tiny thing that goes in the horse of the mouth which actually controls the direction of the big horse. And horses are big, aren't they? When you get up next to them, you realise they're big things. But it's this tiny thing in its mouth which actually controls its direction. The small directing the big. Or he says, think about ships. You can have a huge ship and the winds are battling against it and it's being tossed around on the waves. But actually, it's a tiny little rudder, a little bit of wood, basically, stuck on the back, which moves to left or right which dictates the direction in which this huge ship goes. This small thing directing the big. And so he says the tongue, in the same way, is a small member. It's a pretty small body part, really. Yet it boasts of great things. He doesn't mean it boasts as in it gets really arrogant. He means it boasts as in it can rightly claim. Estate agents say this. No, this house boasts three lovely bedrooms and sea views. They mean it can rightly claim to have this. The tongue can rightly claim to do great things, to have great power. Very small, but hugely, hugely powerful. We might think our speech is insignificant, but what James is warning us here is it's really not. It's really powerful. And then he tells us it's powerful and it has the potential to do great, great danger. He says, think about a fire. A fire can start as a tiny, tiny thing, just a little spark, and at an incredible pace can suddenly grow and cause huge destruction. He says a tiny fire in a forest can quickly spread and the whole forest can be ablaze. And speech, he says, has the same power. The tongue, he tells us, is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. It is so, so easy for us to do harm and damage with our words. There's been some research done in both uh, business contexts and in marriage relationships, which has shown it takes about five bits of positive speech to undo the damage of one bit of negative speech. That's how powerful badly used speech can be. And the Bible affirms this. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Proverbs, a collection of wise sayings. It tells us all sorts of things about speech. It says in chapter 12, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You know what, you can use your, your words like a sword to dab, stab into people's hearts. Or you can use your tongue to bring healing and comfort to build people up. Another one in Proverbs 18 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Our words actually have the power to bring death to people, or the power to bring life to people. And the writer of Proverbs here says, The one who loves it, either the one who's overly talkative, doesn't learn to control their tongue, will eat its fruits. Basically, we'll get their just desserts. What we say really, really matters. And James further explains this potential, this power and this potential for damage. He says the tongue has the power to stain the whole of our bodies. And if you think back to chapter one, that kind of key statement James makes about religion that's pure and undefiled, the thing which kind of tells us what the whole letter is about, the third thing he tells us, which is key to pure and undefiled religion, is to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Well, here, James is warning us the tongue has the ability to stain our whole body. 
He says the tongue can set on on fire the whole course of life. So this isn't just a problem for young people. It's not just a problem for newer Christians. It's not just in some areas of life that it's powerful and it's dangerous. Actually, all throughout our lives, whatever's going on in our lives, the tongue is potentially dangerous. It's got great, great power. And he even finishes this section by telling us the tongue is set on fire by hell. He says it's destructive power comes from hell. It comes from all the evil that is opposed to God. This is a serious, serious thing. We all know, don't we, that really kind of famous phrase we're told as kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never harm me. And we all know that that's absolute rubbish. The wounds made by sticks and stones will heal, often quite quickly. The wounds made by words can be far deeper, far more painful, far more difficult actually to be healed. The tongue is incredibly powerful. And that's really the first thing we've got to realize. Sometimes we're just ignorant of how much power our words can have. This is always true. It's true in every relationship, in every interaction. But as I said, on baby Thanksgiving, it's good to think about this for families. You guys who are parents, think about the power of your words on your children. Are your words building up your children and encouraging them and blessing them? Or actually, are you, maybe even without realizing it, tearing them down, discouraging them, doing them harm? For all of us, whether it's in marriage, in friendships, in work context, think about what the power of our words is doing. Think about how destructive our words can be. And some of us today will need to repent. God might highlight to us today ways we've used our words which are unhelpful, which are wrong, which are hurtful and harmful to people. And God will call us to repent. That means to recognize it's wrong, to ask his forgiveness, to stop and to turn and to live a different way. So he told us about the power of the tongue. He says, well, the next logical thing is we need to learn to control it. We need to learn to tame our tongues. But he says, that's a really, really hard task. Think of the animals, he says. We've kind of tamed all sorts of animals, the the beasts and the birds, the reptiles, the sea creatures. But he says, no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, he says. It's this sense of it's always kind of liable to break out spontaneously, bringing evil. And he tells us it's full of deadly, deadly poison. There's a sense of this kind of instability in the tongue. Anything could happen at any moment. And he gives us an example, which we might recognize in our own lives, of where that kind of instability comes out. The fact that one minute we can be blessing God, we can be recognizing who he is, giving him the honor that he's worthy of with our speech. And the next minute we can be cursing someone who he's made. And then one minute we're using our speech as we should, the next minute we're using it for totally the wrong reason. He talks about the fact we can curse fellow human beings who are made in the likeness, the image of God. The Bible tells us that every single human being is made in the likeness of God. That means that every human being has an inherent worth and dignity and honour bestowed on them by God. It's the thing which separates us from every other part of the creation that God has made that we alone are created in God's image, in his likeness. We have incredible worth because of that. And so James is saying, therefore, it's totally wrong to use our speech to curse those made in the image of God. And by cursing, he means kind of calling down uh, uh, evil on or calling on God to cut people off from blessing, which in our context, probably we don't do so much. It's not really within our modern Western way of thinking. But I think there's plenty of comparable ways where we use our speech to hurt and to harm people made in the likeness of God, which James would say are equally inappropriate, that you can't be blessing God one minute and then cursing people the next. An obvious one would be gossip. Gossip's so easy to get drawn into. 
We talk behind people's back, often it's stuff which is half true or often untrue. It's hurtful. Often, actually, we do it out of a sense of pride and thinking that we're better and we're looking down at each other. And the consequences can be hugely, hugely damaging for people's reputation, for people themselves. Well, just think of how we can use our speech to tear people down. We can be insensitive, overly critical, judgmental, spiteful. All of these things do serious damage to people, to those who are made in the image of God. And James is very clear that to do these two completely opposites is totally wrong. He says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. And to demonstrate kind of how inappropriate this is and to help begin to get us to realise how we can change this, he gives us some illustrations. Think, he says, of a spring that produces water. He says one spring can't produce both fresh water and salt water. The type of spring dictates what comes. It can't do both. That's an absurd idea. He's saying in the same way, a truly religious person, living out religion that God accepts, can't both curse God, uh, bless God and curse people. Or he says, think of a fig tree. Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? The obvious answer is no. The fruit that is produced is determined by the type of tree. You have to have the right type of tree to get the right type of fruit. He's saying if you're truly religious, you should be bearing the right type of fruit. You can't get two types of fruit from one tree. And then he finishes by saying, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. If you've got a bucket, took some water out of a salt pond, there'd be no chance of that water being fresh because the water that comes from the pond is dictated by the type of pond. And there's two things he's trying to teach us through these illustrations. The first one he's saying we shouldn't be doing both good and bad with our speech. He said it's absurd to do both things with the same part of your body. It's like that spring producing fresh water and salt water. It just doesn't make sense. But then he tells us the second thing. What we produce is based on what we are, based on who we are. The type of tree or the type of pond determines the fruit that comes or determines the water that is produced. The same is true for our speech. So how is it that we can become the, the kind of right kind of person to produce the right kind of speech? How is it actually we can have any hope of taming our tongues, given that James has written, no human being can tame the tongue? Well, actually, I think the answer, the clue is in that very verse where James says no human being can tame the tongue. Because actually, he doesn't just say human being in the kind of normal way of saying it. If you dig down, he uses this really odd construction. He says no one among people or no one among humans. It's like he's really trying to get this idea of human across to us. He's really trying to get us to see no human person, no person, no earthly person can do this. And if that's the case, we need someone who's not earthly. We need someone who's not human to help us, to empower us to do this. We need God to help us to control our tongues. We can only become the right type of tree, the right type of pond to produce the right fruit, the right water by God's work in us. You know, the wonderful promise of the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus and now gives to us, is that God doesn't just forgive us for the things that we've done wrong, but he also transforms us. He also enables us to live his way, to live the way where we will find true freedom and true fulfillment. The Apostle Paul talks about it as saying we were slaves to sin. And a slave has to do what its master says. It has to do the master's bidding. We had to follow slave ways. But now, he says, we've died of Christ. We've been raised in new life. And now we're slaves to God. We're slaves to righteousness. That means right living. Now, actually, the new power over us, our new identity, is that we're slaves to God, enabled, empowered by him to live his way. 
So as we seek to tame our tongues, it's not just kind of going, well, I'm going to try really hard this week, and I'm going to try really hard and all my strength to do it. Actually, we're saying, God, I want to change. And God, I'm going to take steps to try and do that. And then we accept his power working in us as we do. This kind of wonderful sense of partnership. This realizing I'm no longer a slave to sin. I don't have to do this stuff. Actually, I'm a slave to God. I'm, I'm free to control my tongue. God has given me the freedom, the ability to do that. We get to partner with him and the power he gives us to do this. So the tongue is incredibly powerful. Our speech has power. Our speech can be incredibly dangerous if used wrongly. And the only hope that any one of us has of taming it, the only hope every one of us has of living out the religion that God accepts, what God wants, is by allowing him to work inside of us. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're not a Christian, but you're so aware of the destructive power of your speech. You're so aware that even maybe though you hate the fact that it happens, you hate that you do it, that your speech causes harm, causes hurt, causes destruction. Maybe you think you can't do anything about it. Well, friend, let me tell you, you're right. You can't do anything about it. But Jesus can. Jesus today wants to forgive you for all the mess, all the harm you've caused with your speech. And wants to transform your identity. Come and live inside of you, empower you to live his way. If that's you today, you want to find out more, don't leave without kind of taking up that opportunity. Come and find myself, come and find someone who'll be down at the front of the end. We'd so love to talk with you more, to tell you more about the wonderful good news of Jesus. And if you'd like, we can pray with you. Maybe you're here today and you're a parent. Let me gently challenge you. Think about how you're using your speech in your parenting. What is the effect that this powerful thing that comes from your mouth is having upon your children? And let me encourage you, be seeking every day to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that he would equip you and strengthen you and empower you to live out his way. And that's what we're going to do as we pray for parents today. We're going to pray for God's blessing upon them, for the filling of the Holy Spirit, that God might help them to live out religion that he accepts, to set an example to their children, to love their children as they do so. And for all of us, the only way we're going to be able to use our speech well is by God's working inside of us. If this is something that God is challenging you on now, maybe later grab a friend, ask them to pray with you, ask them to pray that the Holy Spirit would fill you, would transform you, would empower you, that you'd know you're not doing this on your own, you're doing this in the power that God has given you. Can I invite the band to head back up? I invite everyone to stand if you'd like to with me. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing a song in just a moment during which we're going to collect the children. So we're all together for giving thanks for these children. But let's stand. We're going to engage with God. We're going to pray, ask him to help us in this before we worship. Father God, we recognize the wisdom in this passage. We recognize the incredible power of the speech, the abilities that you have given us. We recognize it's incredibly powerful. It can do wonderful good, but also it can do great damage. And Father, we admit that on our own, we are unable to tame our tongues. We are unable to live out the religion that you accept. But we thank you so much that what you have done in Jesus is that you offer us transformation. That we become no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to you, slaves to righteousness. That we get you living right inside of us to empower us and to transform us. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, would you come fill each one of us here? Would you come empower us? Would you challenge us when we're using our speech badly? And would you give us real uh, transformative power to live differently, to produce the right kind of fruit, have the right kind of water coming from the spring? Lord God, Holy Spirit, would you work in us to do that rightly, we pray. Empower us, I pray, as we go from here. Amen.
We're going to worship now. If you've got children who are in tots or in energy, please go and collect them as soon as possible. Engaged children will also come and join us. Then we're all going to be together so we can give thanks to God for these dear children we're thanking him for today.